Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We do appreciate it. Today, we're going to be going to Nashville, Tennessee. My colleague Jesse Allen is there, and he will have a lot of information for you from the Cattle Industry Convention in Nashville, both today and tomorrow. So that's coming up here in just a moment. But before we turn it over to Jesse in Nashville, welcome now Todd Neely, DTN reporter. Todd, good to talk with you again. Let's start off with some big, big spending out of Washington, D.C. It looks like the Senate will go ahead and pass the $1 trillion infrastructure package. But then it goes to the House, and then we get into the $3.5 trillion budget resolution, or human infrastructure, as it is being called. Uh, You know, at some point, doesn't someone have to say, how much can we afford here? How much can we spend? I... I find myself really torn on this because we talk so much in agriculture and rural America about the need for infrastructure improvements, been pushing for these for years, and that need is very real. But if it comes with such a high price tag, uh, we got. I, it seems like we have to pause here for a moment and say, will the cure be worse than the, uh, the, than the illness? I, I, I don't know. If, if you just keep stacking trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt, that price has to be paid. That that bill comes due at some point. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Mike. I think um, you're right. We're talking about some staggering amounts of money. And um, I think the thing that, um, you know, it's it's important. You're right. We need to go into infrastructure. We need to uh, to make investments and improvements there. There's a lot of places in rural America that, that need a lot of investment, uh, places that have been neglected for, for many years. Um, I think the thing that's probably most concerning is that even if we pass a bill of this nature, um, we don't really know what's actually, uh, you know, in there exactly. We don't know where the funds are going to go exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's not being talked about a lot. And so I get the sense that if we spend this kind of money, um, you know, I would think that rural America probably needs to know how much of this is going to go their way. Um you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of interest involved. It's not just the rural areas of the country that need infrastructure help. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot of urban areas as well. And so, uh, one trillion dollars in infrastructure is a lot of money. But we just don't know uh, specifically how that's going to benefit rural America at this point. Right. I'm not convinced that we're going to see the significant upgrades in our infrastructure in rural America and for agriculture that you would it. That we're being told we would get if this passes. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully, I'm wrong. Right. But I, I, I am skeptical on that. The other part that bothers me. Remember when we used to talk about offsets? And if you're going to spend a trillion dollars, right. you ought to find a, a trillion dollars and cut somewhere else. You know, it seems to me we talk a lot about pay fors. How are we going to pay for this? How about you pay for it with the taxes we are already paying and make better use of those dollars and put them towards things that need to be done like infrastructure? Right. You know, and that, that's a great point, Mike. I think, uh, you know, we're, when we look at such staggering numbers, um, 
you know, paying for these things are not going to be easy. And, and you're right. I don't know that, you know, some of the, some of the things that have been raised as possible pay for is, I don't know to me, you know, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not an economist, but it, it's really hard to see how those are going to add up to, you know, a trillion dollars. And this is just the beginning, you know, the three and a half trillion dollar uh, bill that's going to be debated is, you know, a monstrosity in terms of uh, the numbers. And, uh, I think you're right. I think if we're going to find ways of paying for these things, they need to be something that everyone can look at and say, okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, the math adds up and that sort of thing. And I, I just don't know that it's there. You know, I, I guess I don't know all the details of the legislation, but uh, a trillion dollars is a long way to go. It's a long, you know, it's a big number to try to make up. And, uh, you know, and just to the whole, just to the whole idea of what's needed out there for infrastructure, um, a trillion dollars, I, I don't think that that's even enough. If you were to spend all of that in rural America, I still think there's, I still think there's a, a wide gap there to be covered. And, um, you know, maybe it's a start, but I guess we have to see what the details are. Yeah, perhaps I'm being a little naive, but I think a lot of us say, wait a minute, what is the, the main function of government? Where do we send our dollars uh, mm -hmm in mm -hmm. for our tax dollars part of that is to protect us part of it is to provide things like infrastructure so to me it seems like aren't we already paying for it why do we have to pay more to get what we should have already been getting that is to keep up our infrastructure all right so i'll, I'll get off my soapbox and move on here to something else uh, a big a big anniversary here a year ago derecho and I, you know i remember when that storm hit yeah. uh there were analysts saying, well, in the big picture, sure, it's going to hurt those that got hit by the storm. But in the big right. picture, the crop was so big, it wasn't going to make that much of a difference in, in the, you know, our total production and things like that. Well, now looking back, we see it, it had a, a bigger impact than a lot of people thought at the time. Absolutely. You know, just in Iowa alone, uh, you know, there were six trillion, excuse me, uh, there were six million acres of soybeans and corn that were either uh, found to be total losses or found to be, uh, you know, at least partial losses in yields. Uh, and, you know, we're still, we're still trying to pick up the pieces from that storm. You know, uh, insurance has covered a lot of crop losses, particularly in Iowa. Uh, but we also saw, you know, with that storm, it, it went all the way over into Illinois, um, you know, even parts of Indiana. I mean, it was, it was a wide swath. It's been characterized as the, long, the, the most costly U.S. thunderstorm in history, um, and we're still a year later. A lot of people are still trying to figure out, um, you know, how to cover losses, how to how to get all that infrastructure recovered. Um, you know, they managed to get through the last year's harvest and all that, um, which was pretty amazing in of itself. But it's really staggering how how big that storm was, and it was, you know, it was it was amazing winds. I mean, we're talking 140 mile an hour winds that blasted across Iowa and Illinois. Um, and it was it was really quite a sight to see. Reminds us again, the crop is not in the bin yet. Now, I know you and your colleagues yeah. are working on a story uh, looking back at the one year anniversary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're kind of going back talking to producers who we talked to last year, uh, you know, in some of the situations that they faced, you know, that a lot of them lost storage, grain storage that had to be recovered at the last minute uh, just to get ready for harvest. It really came at a really tough time. Um, and so, yeah, we, we're going back, we're talking to those people to see how things are going and, and, uh, see where we go from here. Yeah. Well, be uh, looking for your stories and, uh, be interesting to hear their, uh, their thoughts and, uh, 
and looking back on what it was like going through it and how they've dealt with it since then. All right, Todd, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. All right, the big cattle industry convention is underway in Nashville, Tennessee. Our colleague Jesse Allen is there. We're going to turn the rest of the show over to Jesse. He's going to be talking with folks there in Nashville at the big cattle industry convention. Lots to talk about big topics and uh, some big issues for the uh, beef industry. Jesse Allen next, right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Every day, DTN and progressive farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Michael Langmire, Purdue Ag Economist, want to get the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Kind of give us an overview. Producers are obviously very concerned about input prices. We asked a very general question about whether they expected the prices paid index would include all the inputs used in production agriculture, both for crop and livestock producers. And historically, that average has only increased about 2% for the last 10 years. But only 20% of those surveyed think that in the next year it's going to be less than 2%. So that means 80% of the producers think that we're going to see considerable uh, input price inflation compared to what we've seen in the last 10 years. And, and it's not just cash rent, fertilizer in particular, but there's other input prices also that they're very concerned about. And so I, I think the combination of those two things is creating a situation where the index is lower than certainly what it was in the spring of this year. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. 
U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, and a good morning here from the Cattle Industry Convention in Nashville. Jesse Allen here for Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA. Happy to uh, have you part of our day here today and happy to be here in Nashville for the Cattle Industry Convention. We got a lot of exciting things going on here over the next couple of days. Going to be talking to a lot of industry leaders here at uh, the Cattle Industry Convention. And first up, uh, joining me here today, we have the president of Certified Angus Beef, John Sticka. John, great to have you here. How are you? Jesse, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. It's great I, to be in person. Yeah, it is great to be in person. <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely uh, something I think we've all been missing for sure, for sure. Let's talk about uh, certified Angus beef. And I think just in general to start, John, it, let's talk about that beef demand. You know, we're hearing more and more about this demand for beef coming out of the pandemic here or trying to get out of the pandemic. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing for for that beef demand right now. Well, Jesse, you mentioned perhaps what is the the most exciting thing coming out of the pandemic. That is strength in beef demand. I think, you know, right now we're, there's a lot of dynamics that uh, the industry is, is reeling with. Um, but demand solves a lot of problems. When consumers want your product, it makes solving some of the other issues that we have throughout the supply chain much easier. And what we're seeing as a brand is just a record demand for our product. Consumers have come to the meat case at our grocery stores and, and, and bought the product on the menu uh, looking for quality. And I think it sends a very clear signal to the production sector that uh, beef is, is king right now and uh, consumers are willing to pay the price for quality. Well, definitely. And I think about this as well, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of folks got used to eating at home and cooking at home. And I think that uh, maybe you speak to that as well. That seemed to help drive a lot of our demand for, for beef as well. You bring up a very good point. Obviously, when when we were uh, uh, in quarantine and so forth, consumers really did probably learn how to cook uh, more than ever before. And and uh, dining in at home uh, was definitely something that was uh, required, but also something that I think consumers actually began to enjoy. Uh, but what's interesting is we continue to see retail demand extremely strong, even as we see the restaurant industry begin to pick up in terms of sales and demand as well. So what makes us so bullish about what we're seeing currently is we believe there's just some some pent up organic demand growth that we're experiencing because we don't see food service succeeding at the expense of retail. Talk about how cattlemen can respond to this demand. And we know there's a lot of issues uh, right now with with cattle country and things and, and worries, but not only drought, but policy issues. And that's a totally different story. But talk about just the demand side. How could cattlemen respond to this right now? You know, in here in coming out of the pandemic, what we what we see is that it's important to focus on blocking and tackling. And what I mean by that is is taste and quality was important before the pandemic. And I would say that economic signal is as loud and clear now as it's ever been. And so as a producer, I just think it's extremely important that as you you monitor the economic drivers on your own operation, that you make those genetic and management decisions that ultimately align your cattle and your product with what consumers are wanting. And that is quality. So that's marbling uh, and so forth. That is extremely important to taste. 
you know, what we're also seeing is uh, consumer demands are broadening. And so, you know, they want to know more about how this product was was raised and was produced. And I think as we hear at this convention, we talk a lot about sustainability and so forth. And those are things that producers need to keep in mind as well. Uh, but again, they're not trumping quality, but they're going to be demand drivers moving forward as well. Talk about being here at the convention as well. And you mentioned some of the things that you talk about here during the cattle industry convention, sustainability being one of them. What are some of the things that Certified Angus Beef, you guys are really going to be talking about with, with cattle ranchers and industry folks here this week? Well, you know, what we're going to talk about really comes back to that relationship with consumers. And it may not be direct, like you know your neighbor, but it's an indirect relationship that, in all honesty, has got to be based on trust. And I ultimately think that's what growing beef demand is based on. Consumers have to trust our product. And what we're going to be talking about uh, here at the convention with producers is, first and foremost, let's not betray the, the quality trust that consumers have in our product. So let's focus on marbling. Let's use registered Angus bulls uh, that have the predictability to deliver deliver that product. But then let's also talk about that whole topic of sustainability. It's not a matter of are we or are we not doing it right, but how are we communicating those things that we're doing to consumers in a way that they can feel even better about the products that they're that they're they're buying and feeding to their families. And so those are the key topics that we're going to touch on. I'm sure you're probably going to hear from a lot of producers about uh, the drought issues uh, going on and how that's affecting our, our cow-calf herd uh, in parts of the country, especially the western parts of the country. And I, I know you uh, you grew up in Kansas, you were telling me, I know you're in Ohio now, but uh, are you hearing some of this from producers and, and how's that going uh, to the demand side of things just with some of the drought worries that are out there right now? You know, without a doubt, we're hearing it, you know, with with, uh, you know, numbers of Angus breeders in some of these drought stricken areas, we're hearing about it firsthand in many cases. And those are difficult situations for any producer to, to work through. Um, you know, what we're seeing from a demand side, at least those cows are, are worth something if they're if they're going to market. Uh, but also, I think as we look into droughts in other areas in years past, you know, we try to be optimistic as best we can in those situations. And it is an opportunity to, to retool your genetics in some cases as you begin to rebuild when we begin to start thinking about those things. But it is difficult to think about those things moving forward when so many are, are dealing with the here and now of having to decide, you know, are they going to liquidate? Are they going to uh, move their cows, mm -hmm. relocate and so forth. But the key thing is to be to be uh, uh, compassionate with those decisions that are being made, but also realize that even those decisions are easier to to make when consumer demand for our product is strong. And that consumer demand remaining strong as well. Another thought that uh, came to my mind as well is, you know, when we look at the meat case, we do see the price that's gone up with some of the other worries uh, in the marketplace, inflation and things of that nature. But talk about how certified Angus beef, how you guys are, are still kind of keeping this at the forefront of consumers' minds here, even as we see a little bit of an uptick in price at the retail counter and at the restaurant too. Uh, great point. You know, price is always a, a determining factor in meat purchasing, whether it's beef or any other protein. Um, but what we focus on is price in relation to value. And, you know, we can't control the price uh, as a brand that uh, end users, grocery stores and restaurants charge for our product. What we can influence is the value, the real and perceived value of our brand. And that's really what we focus on. And uh, driving that quality, value, and perception to consumers is what we help our grocery stores and restaurants focus on, whether that be through marketing, through training. And so we're, we've really doubled down quite a bit on the resources that we provide to grocery stores and restaurants to help communicate that value proposition. Uh, I don't think consumers mind spending more 
as long as they get more. And our mm -hmm. job is to make sure that they understand they are getting more when they buy certified Angus beef. Well, when you talk about the branding and the quality, and I definitely see in the grocery store as well, you know, you see that certified Angus beef label and you know that, all right, I'm getting a good cut of meat, whether it's a steak or whatever the case may be. It represents quality. And I feel like that's a testament to some of that branding that you guys have done. Well, our whole program is built on pull through demand. If the consumer uh, understands and believes that the product is better, they're going to pay more for it. And that, that economic signal flows all the way back to the, the cow-calf producer and the registered Angus breeder. You know, our job is to, to make sure that consumers understand that if it's not certified, it's not the best. Well, John, uh, again, I appreciate the time joining us here at uh, the Cattle Industry Convention today as uh, we got just about a minute or so. Any, any final thoughts you have for us just on uh, certified Angus beef? You know, one of the things that I guess I would point out is we, we're always in a constant state of learning. You know, the, the dynamics are changing rapidly around us. And for any producer who's interested in staying in tune and learning more, not just about the commodity beef industry, but in particular, the growing and more influential quality component of the industry, I would just encourage them to uh, look to our uh, Certified Angus Beef Insider. It comes out every two weeks. It's a great way to stay attuned with, with what's going on in the quality side of the business. And they can access that in, in any other resource uh, at cabcattle.com. Well, great, great stuff as always. And again, um, great to see you in person. Great to be here in person <laughs> yes. at the Opryland here in Nashville. It's, uh, it's uh, a lot of fun. And I was remarking to you uh, as well before we jumped on, it, it's been a while since I've been to a show in person. So I don't know if this is your first back or or not, John, but uh, it's definitely going to be back. It's not my first, but I tell you, I can't get enough of this in-person stuff. It's it's really nice, and it's great to renew relationships in an industry that's built on relationships and trust. Definitely. John, I appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, joining us, and tell us a little bit more about Certified Angus Beef here on AOA. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. John Sticker, the president of Certified Angus Beef, joining us here on AOA. We are live at the Cattle Industry Convention in Nashville, and uh Again, uh, Jesse Allen here sitting in for Mike Adams live at Nashville. We have uh, coming up, we're going to be talking with Don Close from Robo AgriFinance here in the next segment, uh, looking at uh, the cattle markets and some of the uh, cattle availability and more. Going to have a really uh, interesting discussion with Don. Also going to be talking with folks from the NCBA coming up here as well later on here on the program today. So we will, uh, again, have a lot to discuss here yet on the show. We thank you for joining us here. We'll be back with Don Close from Robo AgriFinance here from the Cattle Industry Convention in Nashville. Coming up, you're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast, called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. 
From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA. I'm Jessica Benson. The soy complex and wheat futures are trading optimistically higher this morning. As of yesterday, 64% of the corn crop is rated good to excellent, a small bearish surprise to see a 2 percentage point gain after a relatively dry week. For soybeans, the best rain chances the next seven days are in the eastern Midwest, possibly including southeastern Iowa, while territory west of the Mississippi River stays mostly dry with hotter temperatures. As for wheat, for a change, there will be a lot of interest in the wheat numbers this time around, with traders eager to see production estimates for the various classes of U.S. wheat. On the Chicago Board of Trade, September corn is down two and a quarter at 548. December's down two at 551 and three quarters. September soybeans are up seven and three quarters at 1349 and a quarter. November is up nine at 1338 and three quarters. September bean meal is up 320 at 360.50 a ton. September bean oil is up 15 points at 6087. September Chicago wheat is up 10 and a quarter at 721 and a half. September Casey wheat is up nine and three quarters at 711 and a quarter. And Minneapolis spring wheat for September is up three and a quarter at 912. Shifting to livestock, the country is slow to start this morning. Significant trade volume will likely be delayed for at least another day. Beef demand is still strong and packers will need to step up to the plate and supply that demand or they might lose some market share. And some of the weakness of hog futures seems to be the result of emotion and perception rather than reality, which could push the market too far to the downside. On the Board of Trade, October live cattle are up $1.50 at $128.97. The December contract is up $1.25 at $134.15. September feeders are up $0.90 at $164.10, and lean hogs for October are down $0.67 at $83.92. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jessica Benson. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
And we're back here at the Cattle Industry Convention in Nashville. Jesse Allen in for Mike Adams. And joining me now, Don Close with Robo AgriFinance. Don, great to have you on AOA, yes, sir. Good to be with you. I appreciate you uh, joining us here this morning. And uh, a lot of things uh, that we could talk about uh, industry-wide. And I think just uh, overall with the, with the cattle markets right now, um, I, I know there's a lot of different storylines that we're focusing on, and uh, I, it, we could unpack a lot of them. It's, it's a interesting. Uh, we could start in many places, but I think just in general, you know, looking at uh, looking at these cattle markets themselves, they've kind of been range bound lately. I know a lot of our cattle producers and ranchers are are looking at profitability right now and looking at a lot of factors, and it's very interesting. Uh, maybe you can just speak to where you see the cattle markets at right now, Don. I think I think we're at a at a turning point. Um, if you go back and look at the cattle on feed report and the mid year cattle inventory report that two weeks ago now, mm-hmm. but the fact we we did see that reduction in placements, pulling the cattle on feed number below a hundred percent, and then the the two percent decline in that beef cow number in the inventory, I think it gave us confirmation that. The backlog of COVID cattle has finally worked through the market. We're going to be seeing more of an equilibrium between available fed cattle supplies and slaughter capacity. And we, you know, if we take the, yeah, we've been range brown for months, but the price activity over the last two to three weeks finally start to see some improvement. I think it's better. And looking at, I know, a six-month outlook for fed cattle and feeder prices, um, talk about what's driving those prices and maybe get into some of that long-range outlook that we're looking at right now, Don. Okay. I think the first thing that we need to talk about on that front is beef demand, both domestically and export, has been nothing short of phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the combination of all of the stimulus money, if you take the savings rate that has occurred from the, the people that we're staying at home. You know, sure. we, did, we didn't have all those drains on disposable income. Um, there's just a whole lot of money available to the market. And, and that's re- been reflected in beef demand. The other thing that, you know, exports are suddenly a real, it, it's, it's not that they haven't always been, but the growth we're seeing in exports, it's suddenly a, a significant contributor to that pull on beef supplies and a real influence on price today and going into the future. And I think about that, those exports and that demand uh, overseas and looking at new markets uh, where beef is going. I mean, we we think about some of the Asia Pacific regions and more. I mean, that that demand, you you speak to that, that has really, really um, come on here the last few years. And even, you know, through the pandemic, we're seeing you know, coming uh, with the weekly export sales reports, a lot yes. of those are, are looking very strong as well. <laughs> Incredibly huh? strong. And, and it, you're right. It's it's the whole Southeast Asia complex. But without saying, the 900-pound gorilla in the room is China. Yes. And and the real driver there is when when they curtailed pork supplies to the up to 50% because of the swine fever. And then you stack COVID on top of that. So beef consumption in China had traditionally been meals away from home. Mm-hmm. The price spread between pork and beef got so narrow that beef was clearly the, the value option buy. But they had to prepare it at home. 
So we've seen a whole acceleration of cooking skills and, and beef consumption in home in China that is new. And that is the real driver here behind this thing. Are there any events that economists might be watching for uh, that could maybe change the outlook for cattle here and the forecast for the, the rest of the year and getting into next year? It's one of those things with, that we go to bed with every night. And we got, you know, the, the two, you got animal health issues and you got politics. Uh, and, and both of those, certainly the, the uncertainty with the Delta variant and, mm -hmm. and, all, and, and the, the number of iterations we could see with that, it's going to leave a, a, a volatile undercurrent for the foreseeable future. And I think as well, um, looking at that, some of those uh, pol political issues, and then of course you mentioned the Delta variant, and you know, we can't can't forget about different uh, animal diseases as well. Yeah. And I know, you know, foot and mouth disease is always yeah. a worry on the cattle side, yes. and uh, I feel like that's something that uh, we haven't heard a lot about any diseases, but obviously those are probably things that we're, we're continuing to watch as well to see if we have any issues there. It, it is, and you know, I don't. I think the the big look out there is the fact that we've we've now got uh, African swine fever in the Americas with it mm -hmm. showing up in in Dominica. Um, that's that's getting a lot of attention, and they're and they're working to contain that one. Um, but the uh, the I think the broader scope is just the demand we've had the the weather complications in Australia uh, that that's limiting recovery of inventory. If you take the policy changes, uh, environmental-driven policy changes in New Zealand, that's limiting production out of New Zealand. You take just how oversubscribed Brazil was uh, specifically to China, and it leaves us in, in incredibly tight global beef supplies. The inflation influence that we're seeing here in the States is showing up globally. So, you know, while, while the animal health and politics, as we said, is always underlier, but there's also some incredibly strong signals coming from that global front as well. Don, how has the drought influenced our overall cattle cycle? I know that's a big issue that a lot of uh, cattlemen ranchers are worrying about, uh, especially in the western U.S. Yes. and the northern plains. How is that influencing uh, just our, our cattle cycle and, and our markets right now? It's, it's absolutely huge, and it's and it obviously going to be incredibly important going forward. Um, as we've already talked about, we saw the 2% reduction in beef cow numbers year to date. I don't think we'll see that radical of decline when we get to the full year inventory in January. But but that increase, while it is, has been economically driven, just returns to the cow-calf space, but it has certainly been the accelerator to get additional liquidation of cows. The, the other point that I would bring in that, we, we focus that concert conversation on the Western states and drought. But if you take the escalation in costs, specifically with fertilizer costs to the Eastern U.S. and just the, the returns to that uh, Eastern cow-calf producer, my inclination is we're seeing more cow liquidation in Eastern and we're, we've had in our conversations. Don, as well, I know um, you have a proposal out for a new fed cattle pricing model. Mm -hmm. I, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on that and talk about that. And I know the industry interest is, is really continuing to be there for that. Talk a little bit about how, how you uh, brought this about. Well, I brought it about because I was 
I was frustrated at the the industry. We, we spent two years debating this whole price policy, and and, mm -hmm. and and not a lot was coming out of it. The other thing there was had had been and continues to be so many false accusations and and just rapid mistruths spoken about that. I wanted to get factual information into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. The other thing I was thinking about was we were spending so much time fighting each other on what's the best transaction type or how should we address this, that we weren't giving the, we didn't have the resources remaining to fight the real enemies that are alternative proteins, the environmental groups, the you know animal welfare groups, that we've got to come together on this. And then the, the, the last, so I was looking for a pricing model that would put, make all the, all the argument over variation and transaction types, make, take that totally out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And then the last point I would make is I was looking, I, I have a tremendous amount of concern that a lot of the proposals that have been out there on, on mandating a given percentage of cash trade that. I would like for the industry, instead of looking for ways to take cash markets backwards 25 years, let's try to think of concepts that could move cattle marketing up for, set up for the next 25 years going forward. Definitely. And, you know, I think uh, our cattle ranchers, uh, they're looking at these markets right now and they see the the profitability out there on the, on the packer side. Yes. And, and there's a lot of, you know, obviously talk about that and looking at a model like this, it, it would make sense to try and uh, get everyone together, like you said, and try to find a way to make this work uh, to benefit, benefit our cattle ranchers and our producers more so. One thing too that, that I, I thought about some or, or kind of the, the outcome is mm -hmm. if we would move to a cutout pricing model, it would just put us one step closer to that end user. Mm -hmm. It would shorten the response rate of market signals of, of supply and demand. So I think that's important. Um, the, the real takeaway to all this is, is it's leverage. Sure. You know, when we had, we had been increased. We've, we added 6 million total cattle to us inventory from 2014 to 2019. We did nothing to increase slaughter capacity. Mm -hmm. So, so we essentially handed that leverage to the packer. Now that he's had it, you know, we're, we're mad because he does. And mm -hmm. well, that's where we stand. What did you anticipate? Exactly. That's where we stand. Don, we're out of time. We got to wrap it there. I appreciate you joining me here on AOA today from the Cattle Industry Convention here in Nashville. Thanks so much. Jesse, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Don Close of Bravo AgriFinance joining us. Coming up next, Ethan Lane from NCBA going to join us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. 
Plus. With the way this year has been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Veronica Nye, economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. This is uh, the downside of higher commodity prices, right? That we see these input costs going up. Yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, you know, USDA is projecting some pretty sizable increases, especially in you know the fertilizer and chemical side. Looking at you know when you combine those, about a five percent increase in 2022 compared to 2021. So certainly not a insubstantial increase when you're thinking about the fact that fertilizers and chemicals make up, you know, nearly 50% of total operating costs for corn and beans. And it looks like the costs are pretty much across the board. They are. You know, you sort of look at, you know, the major field crops and and you're looking at somewhere around about an average 2% increase on the operating cost side for corn, beans, wheat, cotton, rice, peanuts, sorghum, oats, and barley. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. And our guest today is Sarah Ingstrom, Chief Information and Security Officer at CHS. Sarah, we hear a lot these days about ransomware attacks on high-profile supply chain companies. Why do you think these bad actors are targeting those organizations? We live in a world where uh, now we are surrounded by technology and many uh, smaller organizations haven't had the resources or the investments in securing uh, how people, uh, employees um, and partners connect with that technology. So unfortunately, um, now the uh, bad actors are really going after organizations who have not had that same investment profile that banks retail organizations uh, have had over the past 10 to 20 years. And um, now we're seeing that more in manufacturing, hospitality, education, uh, and government even um, are the ones that are in uh, those bad actors' targets. So what should farmers expect then from companies that they do business with in terms of cybersecurity? 
they should really expect that they have someone who's um, running their security organization, such as myself, don't necessarily need a chief information security officer, but certainly need someone who's accountable to security, uh, asking questions of um, others in the IT organization. And if that is outsourced to a third party and uh, companies are using a third party to manage their infrastructure and IT services, that you've got somebody on your team that's working for your company that, again, is accountable to security and asking questions around what that IT provider is doing. That's Sarah Ingstrom, Chief Information and Security Officer for CHS. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Jesse Allen here for Mike Adams on AOA. We continue our conversation at the Cattle Industry Convention in Nashville. Joining us now, Ethan Lane with the NCBA. And Ethan, appreciate you uh, joining us here today on AOA. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with that infrastructure package on Capitol Hill. I know that's a big topic right now. Uh, talk about the latest you're hearing and some of the uh, things the NCBA is looking at with that package, Ethan. Well, it's starting to feel like Groundhog Day in Washington with this package. And, and you know, we are kind of getting close, it looks like, to passage in the Senate of that hard infrastructure package. That's the real nuts and bolts, roads and bridges and tunnels and Wi-Fi and things that are important to people all over the country. The, the rub is still what's going to happen to that when we get over to the House side. Nancy Pelosi has made it clear she doesn't want to move that package without that human infrastructure is what they're calling it. Three and a half trillion dollar budget reconciliation package that has all of those kind of goodies uh, for some progressives and others in the in the country. We need the hard infrastructure. That bigger package is really concerning for us because there's a lot of tax implications for our producers there. You know, repeal of the stepped up basis, repeal of rollback of death tax levels, elimination of 1031 exchanges as a tool for producers to use to manage their assets. Those are really big problems for us. Um, and, and we're not alone in that. Thankfully, there's a lot of other industries that are watching that as well. But that's really where this, this conversation is going to go. I think we're going to make it through the Senate, going to have that blueprint in place. And then we're probably going to sit a little while and wait till September to see how the House wants to deal with that whole suite of issues moving forward. When you talk about some of those things that could possibly get rolled back, uh, you know, especially the death tax and things of that nature, state tax and everything else. And you, you bring that up. That's a huge, huge concern right now across the country with uh, farmers and, and ranchers alike. And, you know, I know there's uh, I've even heard talk. There's quite a few people have heard a little bit around the coffee uh, pot this morning, like people maybe trying to get ahead of that a little bit. Some older farmers. You know, it's funny you say that because I've heard the same thing since we've been here in Nashville. There's a lot of folks talking about estate planning, talking about making moves now to make sure that they can preserve whatever value they can in those operations that have taken them generations to build. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that, you know, one fail swoop in Congress can eliminate all of that, all that equity in farm country is outrageous. Um, you know, I think that, that Congress is hearing those messages. We keep talking about the fact that 40% of our operations are going to transition to the next generation in the next 15 years. That means there are a lot of people my age and your age that are looking at how they stay in agriculture, how they keep that family tradition going in that business. And, and the decisions that Congress makes in the next few months here are going to be pivotal to that to that playing field 
Talk about uh, let's shift the conversation. Another big topic, obviously, slaughter capacity with, with Packers, and that's a that's a huge huge issue right now. What's the latest you're hearing on on that and anything uh, going on in D.C. to try and help that? Well, so obviously, we're still working through Secretary Vilsack's announcement about five hundred million dollars in in additional funds to increase regional packing capacity. Right, mm-hmm. and that's that diversified packing capacity that's so important. To this conversation. And it's an interesting time because you have all of these new plants that have been announced, right? You have North Platte, you have the, the heritage plant in Iowa, um, the, in Jerome, Idaho, Agribeef is putting a new facility together. There's all these hooks coming online in the next 18 to 24 months that are looking for capital. These are expensive undertakings. And no matter where I go in the country, whether it's down in Georgia, up in Pennsylvania, those producers are saying, great, when do we get one, right? That's going to meet our needs in, in our area and, and eliminate some hauling time and eliminate some, some logistics for us in order to get to market and reach those local consumers. Um, we're working through the process with USDA now. They're gathering information on how to distribute that money. There are some technical questions that we need to make sure we give them really good feedback on. Who, who should qualify? Who shouldn't? Who, you know, how do we make sure the big four don't just hoover up this money and, and go on down the road, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we make sure that we're getting the largest exposure to potential new operations possible? Um, what about a plant that's halfway out of the ground? Can they qualify or is it only new business? You know, there are some of those details that we're going to need to make sure we're giving them a lot of input on so that they can get this thing structured right um, and make this, this funding available to, uh, to folks around the country where it pencils to add some new capacity. Other big issue I know we're going to be hearing a lot about here this week uh, amongst uh, folks in the industry and cattle ranchers is uh, climate, the droughts. Yeah. That's 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 the other big 100-pound uh, gorilla in the room, 1,000-pound gorilla in the room, whatever you want to say. Uh, talk about what you're hearing from producers across the country, especially our western states and the, and the northern plains where that drought is really prevalent right now. You know, I had a chance to have breakfast with my friend Dave Daly from California this morning. He was really got a lot of exposure for the devastating fire on his operation in California last year. Um, and I asked him how things were going, and he said, not as bad as last year, but that's not a really good standard to look to. I think that's really true for a lot of folks in the rest. Certainly, I hear it, my, my family at home in Arizona, um, you know, we're hearing it in Colorado and up in the northern tier, places like the Dakotas and, and Montana, the hay availability is starting to get really, really scary for mm-hmm. producers in, in a large section of the country. Um, that is that is an incredibly pressing issue. Um, feed availability and, and that downward pressure and just cost to, to, to get these cattle where they need to be um, is just one more headwind like we've seen in this market over the last uh, you know, however many months and years, it seems like we get through one challenge and uh, another one comes right behind it. But um, that's something that's definitely at the top of producers' minds. When we go to Capitol Hill and talk about it, I'm really pleased at the evolution of thought on Capitol Hill about how valuable grazing is to that equation, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than five years ago where you had such a drumbeat of anti-grazing thought on Capitol Hill and in, in, you know, in the federal agencies, they're starting to recognize what a critical tool we are and what an important management uh, tool we are for for this 600 million acres of range and pasture in this mm-hmm. country that our producers steward. So getting that message out, talking about how we increase opportunities for voluntary conservation, um, you know, credit trading programs are kind of the uh, carbon credits are kind of the, 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 the you know, the, the big thing in D.C. Sure. right now. How do we set that up? Is that a government program? Is that private industry that facilitates that kind of thing? You know, we've spent a lot of time over the years working on wildlife credit systems. And the thing we always have a challenge with is the demand side. Who's the buyer? Who's going to be the buyer next year if our producers are going to do this work? 
which they're already doing, mm -hmm. how do we make sure they get compensated for it? And how do we make sure there's a system that's going to be consistent moving forward? I think everyone in DC is working on that challenge right now and trying to find the right mix. Definitely. Well, a lot of things uh, to consider. I know we're going to be talking about a lot of different things here this week. And Ethan, I appreciate you joining us here this morning on AOA. Thanks so much. And I'm sure we will see you here throughout the week at NCBA and uh, at the Kennel Industry Convention. You bet. Looking forward to a great week. Ethan Lane with NCBA joining us here. That's going to do it for AOA today. Coming up tomorrow, I'll be back here in Nashville at the Kennel Industry Convention talking about the relationship between corn and, and the cattle industry with the National Corn Growers Association. For Mike Adams, I'm Jesse Allen. You've been listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.